Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Kara. Well, Tuesday was Christmas morning for Bama fans. I think we can say that safely. Bill O'Brien, mm-hmm. going back to the Patriots. Not typical to have a couple of coordinator vacancies in the last week of January, but I'd argue it's a little bit different when you get to fish from a pool as big as the one that Bama fishes from. So as of this recording, which is, what is it, 5 o'clock Eastern time on Thursday afternoon, Bama doesn't have any coordinators. So I think that means everybody else in the West sitting pretty right now. Nothing to worry about, right? Yeah, I mean, I was talking to you off here about how I'm just terrified that they hire like the next brightest best minds in football i was thinking though you know uh saban's daughter obviously like loves the bachelor and everything as we've heard what if they just kind of did a reality dating style show because you know these are the jobs that everybody in college football wants right and so how far do you think like a butch jones would go to get that job i think he would stand on the stage with a rose me personally eh, i don't know there's always egos involved in that butch jones is now a head coach at arkansas state And Mm -hmm. not not to say that he wouldn't drop everything in a heartbeat and leave for that job. But, yeah, there's probably something you could do with that. The problem would be that the producers would be sitting there trying to tell Saban, hey, you know, we need you to give a look off into the distance. We need you to give you we need you to give us this soundbite. And he'd be like, well, no, this is this is not happening. This would be a disaster from that standpoint. But would I watch the five minutes that he would allow it to exist? Maybe. Probably. Mm-hmm. The, I want to put some perspective on Bill O'Brien um, and, and add a few thoughts to this before we get to, to the meat of the pod, because I think it's perfectly okay to say that Bill O'Brien did some really good things, but they weren't good enough for Bama. Right. Two top six offenses. You would take that, right? I mean, like that's not really a whole lot to debate there. You would take a top six offense. You had a Heisman winning quarterback. Your offenses had a the team. first one in Alabama history, by the way. Yes, first one in Alabama history. Great point, Will. And that will forever be associated with Bill O'Brien. And if that's not at the top of his resume, right behind something about making Tom Brady into what he is, which maybe he'll claim. I don't know. I don't know what's mm-hmm. on Bill O'Brien's resume. I've never read it, but it's there. Also there. Two offenses at Bama, TD die and T ratio, 85 to 15. Pretty good. Most teams who go 24 and four and average 41 points a game over a two-year stretch, they aren't necessarily having their OC pushed out of the door. And I'm not saying that Saban pushed him out of the door, but I'd say that fans definitely wanted Bill O'Brien gone. And obviously most programs aren't Bama. I maintain right. my belief that the players like Bill O'Brien a whole lot more than people realize. And in the end though, it's really more about how your head coach feels about your, your coordinator. And in a case like this, wherein Bill O'Brien is, is leaving, it's a little bit different, but because you could make the case that it's a promotion. So take that for what it is. So what is, or I guess what wasn't good enough for Bama that Bill O'Brien did? Because And the last two years, the bad and one of the reasons Bama fans grew frustrated, Bama was in a one-score game in the fourth quarter 13 times. We've talked about that a lot. In the last two years, Bama played in 11 games that were decided by one score. In the six pre-Bill O'Brien seasons, they only had 12 games decided by one score. 
That's not all on Bill O'Brien. Defense plays a part in that. It's also not all on Bill O'Brien that Bama was bottom 20 in penalty yards per game in 2021. And then in 2022, with a more experienced team who was an overwhelming preseason number one, they got worse in that area and they ranked 123 in FBS with 68.7 penalty yards per game. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's that's rare. That's very rare. And He's going to take a lot of heat for that, but how much of that comes on the head coach? How much of that is on Pete Golding? I don't know. They they all play a part in something like that, and a lot of it is in the eye of the beholder. Another eye of the beholder thing is the play calling. It often felt this past year especially that Bama's best plays were off-platform throws from Bryce and not really schemed looks in the way that we often saw with Sark. You were a big advocate of that, that it seemed like Bryce wasn't getting help either from his receivers or from his coordinators. Fair thing to say about Bill O'Brien, that that's a knock against him. I Yeah, I feel like it because they're getting good talent in the door. Like if you don't have receivers at Alabama, you what are you doing? You're picking from the cream of the crop. So that's the tough thing. You know, receivers weren't open in the way that we were used to seeing. And, and part of that is for the first time since 2011, there wasn't a an Amari Cooper. Mm-hmm. Calvin Ridley, Devontae Smith, Henry Ruggs, Jerry Judy, Jalen Waddell, or Jameson Williams. Didn't even have a move the chains guy like John Mechie. So play calling when you don't have that unbelievable game breaker receiver, it's more difficult. A lot of people sold themselves on Jermaine Burton being that guy. Jermaine Burton wasn't that guy. How much of that is on Bill O'Brien? How much of that is on recruiting? I don't know how much of that is on development and the offensive staff as a whole, but the stat that didn't favor O'Brien, and this is something that Bama fans, if you're anti-O'Brien, I'm just, this is catnip for you. Okay. This is what we're going to do today. Bama was number four in FBS with 5.57 yards per carry, yet they ranked number 82 in rushing attempts per game. Not great. The challenge is that if you're running the ball 10 more times per game, you're taking the ball out of the hands of your Heisman Trophy winner. 10 more times per game but at the same time that's kind of what you get paid to figure out and that's why you're being paid a million dollars two million dollars if you're a coordinator at this level to be able to figure that out it's interesting though because is the bama oc job considered an easy one is it no (laughs) no 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 because i think There are people who would say, well, it's easy in a sense, because if there was ever a place where you were set up to have a top 10 offense, this is it, right? You're you're getting that talent in the door, not all of which you have to recruit. Yeah, maybe you got to do some phone calls and you got to do some meet and greet stuff like that. But it's not like you're sitting there trying to build up a class to be able to somehow get five star talent in the door. You show up, you know, that's the standard, you know, that's going to be what Alabama and Nick Saban are doing for you, whether you're there or whether you're not there. But it's you get also pushed out of the door for having the top 10 offense. Exactly. Exactly. Like any points you leave on the field, Bama fans are going to remember it. They, they yep. are. And it could lead to your public perception going downhill. And that's ultimately what I think Bill O'Brien fell victim to. And I'm not even necessarily blaming Bama fans for that. But there are some things that you, you look at and you're like, yeah, that's not great. You know, take away the non-offensive points. Bama averaged 30.7 points in true road games the last two years. That's really where it felt different for Bama in these last two seasons. And like Bama couldn't put its foot on the gas the way that we are used to every single time they step on the field. They let these teams hang around, hang around, hang around. 
And this team with Bill O'Brien as the offensive coordinator never quite had that kick you in the teeth DNA. The weird thing, though, as we talk about this job and really what it is, all of these BAM offensive coordinators have gone on to do some pretty big things. Very well documented. Jim McElwain, head coach at Florida. Lane Kiffin, head coach at Ole Miss. Brian Dable, head coach of the New York Giants. Mike Loxley, head coach at Maryland. Sark, head coach at Texas. And now Bill O'Brien, like I said before, is technically getting a promotion to be the right-hand man for Bill Belichick. How many of those guys, though, left on good terms? Think about that. Because McElwain leaves... And they overhaul the offense immediately, right? Lane has the awkward FAU exit before the title game. Dable looked like a one-and-done guy during 2017 where it looked like Bama's offense regressed because Hurts couldn't throw the ball downfield. But then to uh, second 26, all that happened. So it was a little bit complicated by the time that he left. I mean, Mike Loxley won the freaking Broyles Award, but then Clemson waxes Bama in the title game, and every assistant on that staff was suddenly public enemy number one. And Sark was actually the one who kind of left on the best terms because that 2020 Bama offense was a total juggernaut and now bill o'brien not leaving on great terms it's a weird job it just is because you would think all of these things suggest you're gonna have great success it is a stepping stone unlike any other in college football in terms of assistance and you go on to do great things but do you leave with a great approval rating i i don't know i just don't know and saban has always said since kiffin left this is the offense we run put your tweaks on it let's go this is what we're doing as i said earlier no hire as of yet as of this recording chris lowe reported no dan mullen he would have been my first choice will would he have been your first choice as well Honestly, yeah. So we've been joking off air forever about I would be terrified of Alabama with Dan Mullen because as a play caller, as a schematic guy, Dan Mullen is second to none in college football, you know? And one of the things I, I went on Feinbaum and talked about this is the funny thing is that everybody has forever wanted to see what it would look like having, having Dan Mullen calling place for elite talent. And he couldn't get that elite talent at Florida, so he never exactly. really got to see it. And when so he had it, him at Florida, you had, you know, Riley Cooper running wide open downfield. Like it was crazy, man. Well, yeah, I, I should say he didn't have it at Florida as a head coach, but had it as a coordinator with Urban Meyer. That's a, that's a good point. Um, but but seeing what that would potentially look like, it doesn't look like that's necessarily going to be able to happen. Everything that I've heard is that Mullen wants to be a head coach again, but that he truly enjoys the TV stuff. So he doesn't really have a problem being picky right now. Cliff Kingsbury makes a lot of sense. Uh, oh, gosh. It does. It, re- it really does. If you think about the NFL background that Saban has kind of typically gone for, uh, the the coach who's just recently fired uh, the Saban Rehab Clinic, it's open for business. That wouldn't be stunning by any stretch of the imagination if Cliff is willing to pick up his phone from Thailand. I don't know. Maybe yeah. he does. Maybe he doesn't. Um, someone like Ben Johnson from the Detroit Lions would be really interesting, but I, I don't think – that Saban is going to be able to pluck an on-the-rise OC. Brian Dable is kind of the closest thing to that, but he was Belichick's tight ends coach at the time that that Bama hired him. So it was, I mean, Saban was offering a promotion. It wasn't like, hey, come have the same exact position, but at a lesser level of football. Yes, I know it's the Detroit Lions. I know going from the Detroit Lions to Alabama, some would not too long ago say, hey, could Alabama beat the Lions? That's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, that's not t- typically the way that Saban has been able to, to get a higher Lane Sark and O'Brien. I mean, all the recently fired coaches, 
Loxley was an internal promotion, but even that, you know, he was not retained as the interim coach when he took over for Randy Edsel at Maryland. So it, it's it's interesting because you think that he kind of has a type, which is weird to say aloud, <laughs> but it's a, it's an NFL type. You know, he's same. doesn't like blondes. He likes NFL types. That's just his thing. That's that's let been me, the way of the world. Let me throw one at you real quick. How about uh, Brian Johnson? I mentioned Brian Johnson on Feinbaum. That is a great call. Brian Johnson is somebody who was Mullen's right-hand man, as somebody who has done tremendous work with Jalen Hurts mm-hmm. and is kind of the lost-in-the-shuffle guy of what Nick Sirianni has done. We talked about that a lot in the most recent pod. Go download, go listen to that. I would be fascinated to see him. I don't know that Saban will go with someone like him who doesn't necessarily have the track record as a play caller for that specific role, knowing the scrutiny. I think he is a great candidate and somebody that could be really interesting if Saban was really sold on him, but he has always been with Mullen and always had, okay, you have somebody else that's calling plays for you. And I think he might be more geared to be a future head coach before he becomes a play caller. As weird as that kind of sounds, I could see him doing something like that, but definitely somebody that would be interesting. And Jeff Levy, another one where he's all of a sudden getting thrown out there. Like he went to Oklahoma and would he really go take a coordinator job, his third coordinator job at a power five school in as many years? I I don't know. I don't know. But that's one that's been thrown out there um, a lot so far. But, Will, I'm curious. Did you see this tweet? So I tweeted this the other day. My guy, Eli Savoy with Memphis Radio. He has the Sickos Committee uh, pick for Bama's OC. Who's that? Bobby Petrino. <laughs> <laughs> That would be, yeah, that would be next level. I just want to say, I was Googling really quick. Brian Johnson is the guy, the quarterback on the Utah team that beat Alabama. I, yeah. I kind of forgot about that. And so, yeah, like I, you're right. And you know, what's funny is that it's almost like um going with the direction that he did at defensive coordinator where they hired the young guy might actually end up hurting a guy like Brian Johnson who could be in line for a job like that, but they just got burned trying to get this young mind. But yeah, I think I just wanted to throw him out there, but yeah, no, I, I, I would think they're going to go with an older gentleman. I, think. I would I would probably think, and it, you know, like we, we overreact to this stuff. It's all about, you know, splashy hire. And, but at the same time, like, I don't know. I, it usually always works out pretty well. It, it has these, these last eight plus years. Like who would you, who would you truly say has a, been a failed offensive coordinator at Bama? Mm. Nussmeyer. Nussmeyer. Like, yeah. He's like father of the year now though. Look, he's, He's the father of a quarterback who threw for 250 against Georgia. He's succeeding too. Look at that. Fair, fair, very perfectly valid point. But yeah, this uh, this job is interesting, and that's why we we dug into it. And I'm sure we'll talk about a whole lot more Bama assistant things throughout this offseason. But Bill O'Brien gone. Patriots have officially announced that move, which felt inevitable for the last few weeks here. I just want to say really quick on that because I finally took the time to go look at the home road splits of these two last couple of teams. Oh my goodness, man. Everything that Bama fans say, unfortunately, was kind of true. If you look at uh, 2021 was obviously the more stark one, right? But yeah, at home, more rushing attempts, right? <laughs> more rushing attempts, uh, fewer passing attempts, but more passing completions and more passing touchdowns. So at home, they were running this efficient offense where they threw the ball when they needed to, and it was more effective, but they leaned on the run game. And then on the road, it was just like Bryce Young was like, you know, 
met you down there somewhere. Like the whole offense was just throw the ball. And I'm like, looking at these numbers. That's why I started Google. I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, the home dude, 75% completion rating at home, 58% on the road. Stark. It's literally your eyes, Bama fans were not lying to you. Here's the crazy one. This last season, penalties per game at home, six on the road, 11.2. Yeah. That's- how much, how much of that is your OC though? You know, <laughs> no, how no, much you want it to be. I know, but when you know, when you ask the question, what did he do wrong? Like that's the the piece of it, right? Is it's like, yeah, you got these top ten offenses, but they just look weird. You just don't know how to express it. It's like, yeah, on the road they were like a completely different team. To where if you express that team over twelve or thirteen games, they're not a top ten offense. But the team at home is a top five offense, and they end up somewhere in the middle. So it's like we keyed in on this very early. It wasn't like we broke news on it or anything. But now I'm able to look back at the whole tenure of this and just be like. All these problems are almost exclusively in road environments, which in Alabama is inexcusable because you have the best talent. You should have the best coaching. And it's just, it's insane to look at these numbers and be like, yeah, we have a 40, or is it not 40, but like a 30 game sample size about it. It's crazy. And their road schedule was difficult this year. I think, I think yeah. Bama's road schedule was one of the toughest in the country. And that's ultimately why they lost two games uh, and lost two games in the regular season. But all those tense moments on the road in which you're talking about have to have it plays and when you don't, and when you can't pick up that third down in this spot, that's when you look up and say, all right, this, this ain't saving. <laughs> this is O'Brien. I, and I'm not saying that's, that's entirely right, but he's the easiest person to blame because obviously the common denominator of Saban before O'Brien arrived was, you know, about as bulletproof as it gets in these moments. And so that's why I think this angst was created over the last couple of years, despite the fact that the raw numbers, again, were still really, really good. And Bryce Young winning a Heisman Trophy. It's almost like Sark gets more credit for winning, for Bryce winning the Heisman <laughs> than O'Brien does. As crazy as that sounds, because Sark is the one that recruited him. And even though Sark only had one year with Bryce Young at Alabama, a, a year in which he didn't start any games, it, it will be fascinating to kind of see the way that that's remembered. And if anybody can actually, if that's going to be a trivia question 10 years from now, Hey, who is the offensive coordinator when Bryce young won his Heisman trophy? Oh, Steve Sarkeesian. Surely it was, it was Sark. He brought him to Bama. Definitely not to do this whole thing, but Bill O'Brien is quietly building one of the strangest resumes in the history of football. Cause he was it the is. one that took over Penn state and like put the names on the jerseys or whatever. And then he went to the Texas and coached Deshaun Watson during that scandal. So he would be the trivia answer for that question as well. It was the GM over there. It's like, he's going to end up where, yeah, I mean, Patriots are seeing sure he'll go somewhere else from here, but he's going to have the goofiest resume of all time by the time he retires. Succeeded with our guy, Christian Hackenberg. I tweeted yeah. out that story uh, mm-hmm. the, when he told that on this this past offseason on these airwaves when he was talking about, yeah, I found out that, I, that, that our head coach, Bill O'Brien, was leaving after his first year at Penn State and he was doing a keg stand during it. I mean, it's... Yeah. Like that's Bill O'Brien was was missed at Penn State. And I know uh, my guy Adam Brenneman is a, a big Bill O'Brien advocate as well. But yes, he is on to a new home and Bama turns the page with a coordinator yet again. Okay, plan for today. I've got a question about the proverbial hot seat as it relates to the crop of current SEC coaches. A lot of buyout numbers that I want to be able to dig into. David Hale from ESPN is going to join us in a bit. We're going to talk about a bunch of different ACC storylines. Yes, ACC storylines. we got some non-SEC love in this pod. And then, oh, by the way, speaking of non-SEC love, bold and brash, way too early non-SEC predictions for 2023. Will, a question. Can any SEC head coach be on the hot seat in 2023? Already? Can any going into 2023, perhaps that's the best or better way to say it. Hmm. It feels like the guys that maybe drink, like kind of, 
Maybe, let's, but a, let's a dig lot into of that. guys. Yeah. Yeah. So, because the answer is always yes. You, you yeah. would always think, SEC, you got to put at least one guy from the SEC on any sort of hot seat list going into a season. History tells us that it's inevitable. Since this run of dominance for the SEC began in 2006, the only time in which there wasn't a single SEC coaching change was after the 2018 season. Spurrier famously said at an SEC coaches meeting back in 2006, folks, look around. <laughs> it ain't going to be like this next year. He knew. Little did he know the exact run that the SEC was about to be on with these head coaches, but he was right. We talked about this with the Big Ten rant that I did last week. In the SEC, you're either getting paid or you're getting fired. Well, SEC coaches are getting paid. That's what it is right now. If you missed the graphic that we put out from the SDS social media accounts with the annual SEC coach salaries, here is your summary. 12 SEC coaches are making at least $6 million per year year. Let me repeat that. 12 SEC coaches are making at least $6 million a year. Zach Arnett, Clark Lee are the two coaches who are not making $6 million a year. And technically, Sam Pittman's base pay is only at $5.25 million for 2023. But the, with the retention bonuses, the way that that's structured, it'll average out to about $6.2 million per year. That comes after a three-month stretch in which we watch Eli Drinkowitz, Mark Stoops, Lane Kiffin, Shane Beamer, and most recently, Josh Heupel, all get new deals. And we should probably include Hugh Freeze in there because he's already making more than Brian Harson. Hat tip to Hugh Freeze for being able to work that out. Freeze, Drink, Beamer, Heupel. They just joined the $6 million club. And I guess Heupel went all the way up to the $9 million club, which Lane and Stoops just joined. The $9 million club in the SEC, it already featured Brian Kelly, Jimbo Fisher, Kirby Smart, Nick Saban. Half of the SEC's coaches are making at least $9 million annually on their current contracts. Let me repeat that again, because it is baffling. Half of the SEC's coaches are making at least $9 million annually on their current contracts. By 2025, I bet we're going to be at $10 bucks a year for half of the conference. That's coming, okay? We used to gasp at the thought of a team paying an eight-figure buyout. Even pre-pandemic, and I've brought this up many times because the subject of buyouts fascinates me and I love doing a deep dive like I did all morning on this. Pre-pandemic, 2019, we're talking, there were still more Power 5 head coaches who had eight-figure buyouts than not. These are wild times that we're living in. But my question is if those contracts, which have ballooned rapidly in the SEC, can even allow for someone to be on the hot seat. So let's dig into that because as we know, big contracts usually mean big buyouts. There are some exceptions like Dan Mullen having that 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 bump in base pay to be in the top five nationally, but then the buyout stayed at 12 million bucks, which was always going to be the more important number for Scott Strickland as he determined Mullen's future. I'm going to circle back to Strickland in a second here. Buyouts matter, and if you don't think that they matter, tell me if you think Jimbo Fisher still has a job after last year if his buyout were $6 million instead of $86 million. Don't make me pull out the notebook. I will, okay? Heavens no. Yeah, he's hanging out by a pool right now. In a ranch, probably. Ranch is one of yes. us. Yeah. These things matter, and they could very well be the reason why your coach – I'm pointing at you, Will. That was me. I'll, I'll get to you in a second. Why your coach – most listeners of this podcast could, well, actually, you know what? You do fall into this camp. I take that back. 
why your coach is going to avoid getting fired after a disappointing 2023 season. There is a group of SEC untouchables. Let's call them that, untouchables. Guys who I say without a doubt will not be fired without cause at the end of the 2023 season. That group of untouchables includes Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Brian Kelly, Jimbo Fisher, again, still $76.8 million owed after the 2023 season. I don't want to see him on your hot seat list. Mark Stoops is also on the untouchables list. Lane Kiffin, Josh Heupel. That is the entire $9 million club. Okay, These are the coaches who are making $9 million annually to coach Football. And before you tell me that you think Hypel could be like Jeremy Pruitt, who got that extension right before year three and then got fired with cause a few months later, remember the buyout. Pruitt still hasn't gotten that $12.6 million because all those level one violations, lawsuits still pending on that. $12.6 million is a fraction of what Josh Hypel would be owed if he was fired after the first year of this new deal. Chris Lowe had these numbers. If Danny White, who was a guy that you know well, Will, guy that mm -hmm. was at UCF, hired Josh Heupel two different times, just gave him that new extension. If Danny White wanted to pull the plug on Heupel after 2023, he would have to pay him $45 million. Josh Heupel's not going anywhere. Nope. He's not going anywhere. He gets the entirety of the contract that is remaining if he's fired any time before December 15th, 2025, and it drops to 75% of the remaining deal after that. So if they wanted to fire him on December 16th, 2025, that number would still be about 20 million bucks. That's still what? Less, a little less than three years from now that we're talking just to get that buyout to about 20 million bucks bucks and it's probably four seasons because if you're firing a head coach in this day and age you're not waiting until mid-december to be able to do that you're doing that much earlier so if they fired him in late november of 2025 tennessee would be on the hook for 27 million dollars a lot can change between now and then but in the meantime tennessee isn't paying 45 million dollars to fire hypel at the end of 2023 so don't suggest that josh hypel is getting fired any issues with him on our untouchables list will no, for sure. And I, I think, too, he's has a lot of goodwill as well. I mean, if he yep. looks like a three-win season, it's like, well, you beat Alabama last year. Like, what else? Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Like, yeah. Best season in a couple decades. Right. Good for now. We don't have to worry about you. So that leaves us with Hugh Freeze, Shane Beamer, Sam Pittman, Eli Drinkwitz, Zach Arnett, Clark Lee, Billy Napier. I think Freeze should be added to the untouchables list because, like, yes, I get it. It's Auburn. It's also Freeze. But a hot seat list is about trying to figure out who could get fired without cost. Auburn's coming off a five and seven season with a roster that needed a total overhaul, which I've given Hugh Freeze credit for being able to do that via the portal, via recruiting, all those things. Even Brian Harson got two years at Auburn. Okay. <laughs> Even he got two years. Freeze isn't going anywhere for performance-based reasons, especially not after Gus Malzahn got 21 and a half million bucks after 2020. Brian Harson just got $15.3 million after 2022. And as AL.com reported, Freeze would be owed 75% of his remaining deal, which would be about $24.4 million after 2023. Even for Auburn, that's not happening. Okay. Yeah, they tried to pin a, a with cause scandal. Their last coach, it didn't work. It didn't <laughs> so work. It was not possible. They tried. It didn't work. Oh, for one of the with cause firings, whereas Tennessee is one for one. So track record, not great. And again, not trying to look for the coaches who can get fired with cause. This is all about getting fired without cause, having to fork over that buyout. So Hugh Freeze on the untouchables list. Will, are you good with that? 
100%. Okay. Beamer. He also feels pretty darn untouchable. Just got a $4 million raise annually by the AD who hired him, Ray Tanner. If you just read the Chris Lowe report fast, you might have assumed that this is a Dan Mullen case where the buyout stays the same and the extension was just a nice way to get some recruiting momentum. The percentage of Beamer's buyout is unchanged, 65%. Of course, when you're making a lot more money, 65% of that means that the buyout is also much bigger. So if things went in the toilet for Beamer in 2023 and Ray Tanner somehow just said, nope, this isn't the guy that I thought I had. I need to pay this buyout. 17 million bucks. Mm, it's more than Muschamp. Muschamp got five years, whereas this is only year three for Shane Beamer. Shane Beamer's job security won't come in question unless South Carolina goes two and 10 and there's this internal fighting and he just becomes this bitter dude who hates everyone. So I say that because $17 million for a buyout isn't unheard of. But I'd say it's highly, highly unlikely. And you won't see Beamer on any sort of preseason hot seat list because South Carolina could very well start off ranked in the preseason AP Top 25 for the first time since the Spurrier era. So usually those things don't coincide with being on any sort of hot seat list. I would put Beamer's chances of getting fired without cause at a single digit percentage. Any disagreement on that, Will? No, yeah. I think he's in an interesting situation. Like if I had to... No, nah, I still don't see it. I'm trying to think about who the guys could be. And it's like, maybe like to your point, like maybe if there's just a rift and they win like four games, but even then, yeah, he did enough to like beat Clemson, like same deal as Hypo. It's like, how long has it been since you beat Clemson? Like, do you really think right. you can get enough? So yeah, I think, I think he's still very safe, even though his buyout's lower than a lot of guys. Yeah. And again, we're, we're talking like there would have to be, it would have to be in mid November. We're having these conversations. We're not going to be having these conversations in August. No, no chance at that. So still left. We've got drink. We've got Pittman, Napier, Arnett, and Lee. I'll say this. If you're putting a bet on someone to get fired in the sec, it really shouldn't come from anyone outside of those five that I just listed that, that, doesn't that doesn't mean that they're on the hot seat that's not what that means but that would be the group that you should be picking from if you're doing some sort of future or something like that the guy that you will probably see show up on preseason hot seat lists is drinkwitz do me a favor though every time you see someone do that or every time you see someone or hear someone say he needs to win x amount of games to keep his job See if they say anything about the buyout. I bet they don't. I bet they won't. Because those figures, which I got from doing some quick math after looking at the parameters laid out by Power Mizzou, they are staggering. We talked about this a month ago. I have no idea why Desiree Reed Francois, who didn't hire Drink, agreed to this extension. Drink's new deal. If they want to fire him at the end of 2023, Mizzou's on the hook for nearly 20 million bucks. That is a lot of money for a guy who has yet to have a winning season in his first three years at Mizzou is Mizzou who has essentially never had to pay a real buyout. Are they about to fork over $20 million roughly 12 months after agreeing to a new contract for a six win coach? I bet. No, <laughs> no. Now should he be fired versus will he be fired are two totally different questions. That number drops to $15 million 
after the 2024 season, which is still a lot. But I'm telling you right now that we're going to see a whole lot of Power 5 teams routinely pay that kind of money to move on from head coaches in the latter half of the decade once all this new TV revenue kicks in. You're hearing it now. Be ready for it. We just watched Wisconsin pull off a similar thing. Nebraska was willing to do a similar thing. These teams are going to be ponying up big-time money, and I'm accepting that, but right here, right now, for this situation at Mizzou, mm, not there yet. Not there. Yeah, I, I kind of broke my own rule there because I was when I when you were like think of who you get fired. I was like ah, drink. But then they did the unprecedented move of removing themselves from a how do you like me now season because yep. they had the option of just not paying him and letting him win ten games and then giving him a big deal and they decided to just kind of give him an upper middle class deal without having to prove it. And it's like, why would you? Because what if he doesn't prove it? Then what? Then he's unfireable. So you're right. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter what he does this season. They just kind of have to keep him. When coaches don't get a new deal after year three, they freak out. They freak out. They tell them, they tell their bosses, I can't recruit. I can't recruit. Need another deal. I look, I'd love to see that actually put to the test. I really would. I tell me that that's the reason you're not getting this recruit or that recruit or that you're hearing this, this bit of negative recruiting from this coach or whatever. But I'm not saying that that was exactly what was told behind closed doors to be able to get him that deal, which we we are going to, it is notebook worthy. It is that deal. We're going to keep bringing it up because people need to remember and they need to keep it in context when they talk about his long-term future at Mizzou. Weirdly, Pittman is kind of the inverse of drink. And this is what I mean by that. He's got an AD who hired him originally, but he's got a buyout that could be about half of what drink would be to fire him after 2023. Why is it could be? Because as informed listeners of this show know, Pittman has a performance-based buyout. Rare thing in this day and age. Anything 500 or above, if his record is 500 or above, he gets 75% of the remaining deal. If he is below 500 overall, this is just overall, not within a given season, but overall, then he only gets 50% of the remaining deal. The biggest surprise after Pittman made that switch to Jimmy Sexton to get that new contract, which was agreed upon after the 2021 season, was that it still included that very program-friendly performance-based buyout. That's one of the reasons that Sam Pittman is truly salt of the earth. Great human being. When people say he's genuine, it's because of stuff like that, because you don't always have to do stuff like that, and he did. As it relates to his job security, he is currently 19 and 17 meaning he would have to be three games under 500 in 2023 for his overall record at Arkansas to be a losing record, which would drop the buyout to 50% of the remaining deal. So if Pittman goes like four and eight, he'd have $21 million left on the deal because remember he has the Mark Stoops thing where he just had another year and a $250,000 raise added to his contract just by winning seven games. Beautiful thing that is. So the buyout, if that were to happen, if Pittman goes four and eight, buyout would be ten and a half million bucks. It's not, it's not that much. That was one of the reasons why I was praising this deal last offseason because I was like, Arkansas, like this is kind of your dream scenario. You feel like you have your guy, but at the same time, if things go south in two years and kind of follows a very Brett Bielema-like path, you're kind of good. You're kind of in in a good position to be able to move on from this without necessarily feeling like you set your program back multiple years. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen because it's still Pittman who has been given tremendous support by Hunter Juracek, aka the guy who made the atypical hire in the first place. He has thoroughly enjoyed flexing about what a great find Sam Pittman was. So if Pittman had just gone like 
five and seven this past season, I think you'd see a little bit of a different conversation, but consecutive years with at least seven wins and bowl victories isn't exactly hot seat material at a place like Arkansas, who hadn't won an SEC game in over a thousand days prior to Pittman's arrival. And I feel compelled to remind some Arkansas fans who were very upset during the middle of that Mizzou game when it looked like this season had just kind of fallen apart. Remember how bad things were right before he arrived. Similar to Beamer, this would only happen if things went incredibly south and there became this growing discontent between Pittman and the guy who hired and extended him a key thing to be able to remember it's not impossible but I'd be surprised if we saw Pittman listed frequently as a preseason hot seat coach are we good with that for Pittman let me say this so I want to preface this by saying I'm talking about my favorite guys here in Pittman Beamer some of these guys you know you just got to come up with an answer with who could be the guy and I will say this about Pittman the one way that that could play out is a KJ Jefferson injury because he put such a floor on your team that you know okay so you're replacing both coordinators okay with a head coach that does not call plays that has you know has been a position coach before this so a reality exists in which uh, game two or three, KJ goes down. You got two coordinators that let's just say he goes over two on those hires and they're both disasters. And then you've lost your leadership. You don't have a background of leadership to, to, to take over that. Sure. And your head coach can't call plays to save any of that. And the season completely goes off the rails. I, and with that bonus you talked about, that's all I could say. But I do think weirdly that KJ Jefferson is the key to his job security, because if he stays healthy and has a good year, that's what we're talking about. Maybe beefing up the extension, taking out that clause. Cause you get another nine win season. Then it's like, okay, well we had our first building season during the COVID year. Didn't really count. Had to get out of the Chad Morris era. Now we have two, of three seasons that have been awesome either uh three of four that have been good and two of two of four that have been awesome so this is like a really weirdly pivotal year for Pittman I think because yes. this is his first like we knew what Bryles was and we knew what um Odom was right we knew those commodities T. Will from UCF not a lot of people have watched them Enos uh you know the Miami thing, Miami ruins coaches. We've talked about this, but yeah. he doesn't have a great rep. Like I was t- talking about this off air is like how many coaches that are great coaches talking about Manny Diaz, talking about Gaddis from Michigan, go down to Miami and just suck for no reason. Kevin Steele. Kevin Steele. Yeah. Charlie strong. How many ever, all these coaches go down there and are just terrible. And I think that's what happened to Enos, but you have guys that are kind of a little bit more improving and might have a little bit more baggage. Um, baggage is a bad word when you're talking about bridles, but point being guys that have a little bit mixed, um, mixed emotions. So then the, the narrative might be, Oh, this guy might've made the wrong hires. So that's all I'm saying. And just the cautionary thing there. But I do think KJ Jefferson weirdly is what provides that floor. Cause he's such a leader. He's such a guy that can do it with his arm and his feet that once you get in these close games with him, I think he kind of puts you over to at least a seven, eight win floor. Sure. Wheels would have to fall off. Yeah. Wheels would have to totally fall off. It would have to be clear. Both coordinator hires kind of bombing. Right. You're staring up at the rest of the SEC West. And and I'm not saying that's impossible, but it is still somebody who is in high favor with his boss. Mm -hmm. And everything suggests that Hunter Juracek would give Sam Pittman that year of grace. And Mm -hmm. then he would go into the following season in a prove it type of year. It's we won't rule it out, and that's why we didn't put him in the group of untouchables. But it's just something that's worth remembering as we talk about that buyout, which has a five million dollar variance in terms of whether or not he's he's at five hundred or whether or not he's not at five hundred by the time that Hunter Yurchek would have to make a decision like that. So potentially pivotal decision ahead for 
for Juracek and, and kind of seeing the way that this contract is set up and if he wants to finagle that, but we don't have any recent indication that that will be the case. Mm-hmm. Okay. hundred percent. Yeah. And I don't think that will happen at all. I'm just being devil's advocate here. Yep. I love Pittman. I think he's a great coach. I actually like both of the hires. I love Enos. I like T. Will at UCF. I've watched him a lot. Most people just have it. So that's all I was saying. Two top 50 defenses that he had at a place where, man, for a little bit there, defense was They don't play defense down by. there. They, they just don't. don't. Yeah. They really, really don't. They're going to fit in great in the Big 12. They really will. Um, we're still using that narrative, even though there's a lot of good big 12 defenses. I should probably get off that. That's like a, that's like a, all right, stop. That's a, like a dad joke. Like a dad. You, I was about to say, yeah. that's like a, no, you know, play no defense in the big 12. They don't wrap up down there. <laughs> that's what your drunk uncle says when you're watching college football Saturday. They still don't play any defense in the big 12. It's like, all right, did you see anything that played out in the college football playoff? Um, okay. I should have listed Clark Lee earlier. He just beat Florida and Kentucky. <laughs> He's untouchable. <laughs> you this do is that the best Vandy. expectation you could possibly have. He's closer to getting a statue than he is to getting <laughs> fired at this point. Um, yeah. Candace Story Lee hired Clark Lee, who's a Vandy alum. No relation right there. Different spelling of the last name Lee. Don't want that to be misinterpreted on podcast airwaves. But Clark Lee is hired as a Vandy alum to take over a program that was obviously light years behind the rest of the conference. They were this year in year two playing in a bowl or bus game to close the regular season. And even though Tennessee shattered those bowl hopes into smithereens, I'm I'm not of any, I, I will not listen to any talk that Clark Lee is on the hot seat. I am instead waiting any day to see the terms of that inevitable extension, which is was coming. I mean, that was never going to be a situation where he was only going to get three years unless it was like, hey, you still haven't beat any SEC teams through three years or something like that. And I would still argue that what he did in year two exceeded expectations and bought him at least another two years in Nashville. So I, I don't think that's necessarily a, a topic we need to dig into a whole lot. Not sure on that buyout because Vandy is private, but if he gets a new deal to bump that pay up from 3.75 million, which Chris Lowe reported, I'd imagine that'll get reworked anyway. So this would be dated information to talk about his buyout by the time the next season starts, because that new contract will probably have different terms, whether they're public or not. Yeah, you just reminded me, not only you know, did he play fullback at Vanderbilt, but he's from Nashville, oh, and yeah. he took over a team that did not win, like went winless before he got there, and beat Florida. What, what two SEC? Yeah, he could uh, slap Garth Brooks on Broadway Street and still be and he's tired. Yeah. <laughs> he could haul off and slap Toby Keith in Nashville and still have a job. I, yeah, he's. I, I actually think he's pretty pretty close to it right now because of what the expectations are and the fact that he looks like he's really building something. If you fire him after this year... Or next year, if they win two games, like, bro, you'll, you'll have zero wins. <laughs> like, you okay. You didn't realize that that you you said this, but Toby Keith is dealing with extreme health issues. So to slap somebody in his position would be like, by the general public, you'd be like, oh, my God. That's a good point. See, thank Slapping you Toby Keith. I'm sorry. Regardless nope. of Toby Keith. You're right. My point is that he could, Clark Lee could still probably have enough good favor to yeah. be able to get through something like that. Okay. And then there were two. Zach Arnett, Billy Napier. Two dudes who shave their heads even though they aren't losing their hair. <laughs> Billy Napier gave me the craziest look ever when I asked him that question at media days. So I was like, you shave your head and you don't need to and you're in your early 40s. Thoughts? He's just like, I don't have time for that. Hmm, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Go with your process. Let's start with Zach Arnett first. On the surface, I think he would look at some of the circumstances and think that he would be the easiest SEC coach to fire at season's end because he's only making $3 million a year. You got, I mean, 
got bumped up 250% from what he was making. He was making like what? 1.4. Ah, that's some bad math, but he got more than, you know, double what he was making previously as a defensive coordinator at Mississippi state. Um, as we know, contracts in the state of Mississippi can't be longer than four years, unless you can have some additional years added to the back end of the contract through a private organization like Ole Miss did with Lane so that they could basically say, Hey, we're going to give you this mega deal. That's not the case right now for Zach Garnett. To fire him at season's end would cost Mississippi State $9 million. Not even in the eight-figure range. That's not that much. You've also got a new athletic director coming in. He wasn't the one who made the decision to make the in-house promotion of Zach Arnett after Mike Leach's death. So you could look at those things and go, all right, Arnett could fall short of expectations in a prove-it year, and then Mississippi State could kind of go out and deal with a more traditional coaching search. But this is why we need context for all these things. All these things. Remember, Zach Arnett didn't just get some interim tag removed uh, as, as a coach by default in hopes of, of maybe keeping some sort of stability. He got to hire his own staff. That's a big thing to remember. It wasn't like you were just told, hey, you're going to keep the entire staff in place and you're just going to have this title and we'll see how you do with it. They are moving on from the Leech Air Raid with Kevin Barbe as the OC, which is something I'll dig into a bit more sometime soon here. But Zach Arnett overhauled that entire offensive staff. That means if you fire Arnett at season's end, you're looking at three entirely new offensive staffs and probably three different offensive schemes in as many years. And that is a really daunting thing to take on. It's one thing to change your offensive play callers year to year because, you know, you're already going through a pretty significant undertaking to transition out of the leech air raid to go to a system. That's a bit more pistol based. That's what they're going to typically use. That's going to be weird to see Mississippi state doing that. You've actually got to add tight ends to the roster for the first time in four years. I know going to be weird, brother. If you thought I love the three, three, five, let me tell you about the pistol. This is my favorite lad. I wow. Okay. I learned about the pistol back in 2010 covering some Indiana football. Uh, those were the days. Yeah. Learn about a lot of pistol offense. Like, oh, running, running back behind him in shotgun. Oh, okay. All right. This is what you're doing. This is how you're going to operate. Yeah. That's what they're going to do a, a lot, a whole lot. At least that's the current plan, barring some sort of schematic change that we just don't know about. Those are big changes that they're going through. And my point is that I don't think it's a likely situation where you're immediately looking to go to the next thing, unless like Zach Arnett and his new boss, Zach Selman, who was just hired as the new AD there, unless they really don't get along and it's a train wreck of a season, I don't think that you're going to hear a lot about Arnett's job security, especially considering he won the bowl game. He played a big part in Mississippi State winning nine games. Will, as 335 appreciators, do we support that? Yes. No, I think I think it would be a really like I hate to call it like crass, but if you do all that, you know, that you do the internal thing, you talk about your program and what Leach built and everything. I think, you know, it's it's very similar to the Dennis Allen situation in New Orleans, where it's like this is your sure. guy. You you know, you brought him in after the main guy, you know, was no longer there. And so, yeah, I do think he at least gets a year and probably will get more. I think he'll be a good coach. So I think he'll be more than that. But if even if it were to go sideways, I think it would be a little bit crass to just be like, all right, all of the traces of Leach are gone. We're starting over, you know? Yeah, and, and it would have to truly be a a season that falls apart, and we'd be talking about this in November as opposed to talking about this in August. Last, certainly not least, Billy Napier. This was kind of the reason that I wanted to do this exercise, because there are going to be people who are going to lazily assume that Billy Napier needs to win X amount of games to avoid joining the dubious club of guys like Chad Morris, Willie Taggart, Brian Harson, Joe Moorhead. We don't need to 
whatever, um, as guys who were fired from power five jobs after just two years at their respective programs. While I agree with the notion that he needs to figure things out in a hurry in order to maximize this opportunity, you try and capitalize on those new facilities, all those different things. You're trying to get set up for this new super conference era. I'm on board with all of that. His buyout suggests he's not going anywhere. Gatorsports.com had the terms of the deal, which state that Bape, that Billy Napier will get 85% of his remaining contract if fired without cause. Here's how that breaks down, Will. If Florida wants to fire Billy Napier after 2023, they'll owe him $31 million. Actually, it's closer to $32 million, $31,875,000. If they want to fire him after 2024, $25,670,000. After 2025, $19,380,000. So if someone says, yes, I think Billy Napier is going to get fired, they're saying that they think Florida is about to spend $10 million more than the current most expensive buyout paid ever for a head coach, which was Gus Malzahn's $21.5 million after the 2020 season. There is no offsetting money with that deal either. So this isn't a situation where Florida can bank on him getting a coordinator job and having somebody else pay for that buyout. No, that's not happening. And half, half of that buyout is due in the first 30 days with the rest of it coming in those 12, 12.5% annual installments over the course of the next four years. Who negotiated this deal? I need to let that guy do my taxes. 30 days. That's 30 like days. a, that's like a, no, 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 no. Pay me. Like you can't fire me. Cause you could have to have that cash on hand. type of situation. So that's basically a $16 million check that Florida would have to cut in the first 30 days, which last I checked with this Jaden Rashada mess, that's not exactly pocket change for Florida's boosters right now. But wait, Will, there's more. If Scott Strickland really decided to pull the plug on Napier after year two, remember that it's not just the $32 million that he would be owed. Part of his deal was that he got $7.5 million for his assistance and you got a salary pool of $5 million to beef up that support staff. Florida invested roughly $64 million into Billy Napier. Scott Strickland's already fired two coaches. Usually don't get to fire three. So he knows that this has to work, which is good news for a football coach when your boss has extra incentive to want to keep you around. Does that information change the Napier hot seat conversation? Because I hope it does. I personally would never have him on the hot seat just because I think that like you can't I mean that just creates such a toxic environment I mean if he gets fired I mean Strickland's got to be the next guy out the door because at that point it's like what are we building here and I think you did you know you tried <laughs> you truly tried everything at that point if you're Strickland and and to do the whole oh we need a slow rebuild and to kind of get all these bad eggs out of here and if you lose patience with the slow guy then yep. it's like who's gonna take this job now because the guy who came in and sold you that we're gonna build the practice facility and build everything from the studs up you ran out of patience for him after a year it's like okay so you gotta go get Urban Meyer again like what who could you hire that's gonna come in here and deal with that and who could you bring in and feel like like, how would you be able to answer those questions about those those checks being cashed? That would right. Be, like, that's that's a legitimate concern. If you if you were committing that kind of money to be able to pay Billy Napier that, I'm just saying. Like, I, I'm not trying to like harp too much on this Rashada stuff, but that is a lot of money, and we need to remember this because money's not going to feel real 
really soon. It, it's not. There has never been more incentive to figure out your head coach. And I think that's why a lot of SEC teams have said, we don't want to be fumbling around with our head coach when Texas and Oklahoma come in and the Super Conference era begins in 2025 or maybe even 2024, depending on if that can get done. Teams are spending like crazy because that new TV money will be a game changer, especially once the new playoff begins. That is going to happen. But at the same time, I say all this and we just we just went real in depth on some buyout stuff. I'm not dumb enough to think that it's impossible for any SEC coach to get fired. I just think that if we're actually trying to look at this practically, there are a whole lot more untouchable SEC coaches right now than people probably realize. There will be buyouts that save jobs this year. And I think that's the safest bet of all. Yeah, no, that's well. Let me let me do let me go on the Napier thing for a little bit. I think that, in my opinion, this is just I have no insider anything. I I I think that the Florida alumni base is very wealthy, but I think they're pretty smart. And I think that you know it's one of those fool me once type of situations where it's not that they don't have money; it's that we were told there's a practice we're a practice facility away. Oh, we were told we were this away. We were this away, and it's gone from you know not having that stuff to now it feels like they just keep asking these same people for more stuff and i think that that's the thing it's that like i think i i you know knowing florida and how the state of florida operates and how many powerful alums john morgan you know what i'm saying all the people from florida that have come through that system i think that they're a wealthy system but i think that their boosters aren't going to stand for that i think that at the end of the day they're not going to sit there and just write blank checks the way that texas boosters or a&m boosters are i think they're i'm, I'm gonna i'm giving them credit i think they're a little bit smarter and, and sure. that that goes into the thing about maybe there's a little bit of a bubble here with coaching salaries because it's one thing when you see okay we got a brian kelly or we got a josh heupel or we got that but if you're being sold okay we need to get all this money together so that we can go hire this guy and it turns out to be chad morris you know what i'm saying it, at what point you can't write that off under taxes i guess i don't know but it's like you got to get some return on investment for the money you're spending so that's what i'm saying about the boosters that i don't think florida boosters would go for that at this point because i think that i think a lot of them believe in billy number one and i think that number two if they didn't they wouldn't believe in they'd be like look you need to get out of here before i write this next check let me tell you something we need to bring in like some kevin ward or something before i start to give any more money to this place that keeps using my money to fire coaches so i want to say that like i i think that they're smart i don't think that they're broke i think that they don't they know what a scam is and i think that some of this stuff is hey you need to win some games before we start ponying up texas saying in money i think that money's there i think that if they were to win eight ten games i think we'd start to see a little bit more of that money but i think that that money will not be used for another coach buyout you know, I'd be fascinated to to see if there could be odds on, on any sort of gambling site of the first coach to get a $30 million buyout. That would be I would love if if they contracted me to come up with that, which I don't <laughs> think that's how that works. I don't think I'm, I, I don't think I have enough inside intel to be able to do all of those things. But if we were to put odds on the first coach to get a $30 million buyout. I don't think it's Napier. I don't think it's Napier. You'd probably put, you could do something where it's like the state of Texas and everyone else, <laughs> the rest of the 49 the states. Non-Texas, <laughs> the non-Texas, the outer 49, yeah. Jimbo, everyone else. I'd I, I'd rather squat on the state of Texas. That would be, that'd be the better bet. Although, 
Yeah, no, that that would be the best bet because well, you get to we, include Texas. Do we know Sark's buyout? Is that on here? I know he like talked about, but I'm sure it's stupid high too. Like that's the thing. Like they hire some, they throw some money around out there. It's that, that no state income tax is really getting them. No state income tax in the state of Florida as well. So. Yeah, you know. So no, like that's yeah. You're 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 right. And like that's the funny thing is like is who's the first? It's like whenever Jimbo's buyout gets to thirty million, like if they don't fire him at forty, like I guess I'm not being mean, but I still think he's on that trajectory. I I truly don't think the amount of what is the opposite of goodwill, bad will. I don't think the amount of bad will he did this year will get overcome by another eight and four season. I think that. I do think he's kind of, and he might do the old, well, no, he has no incentive to retire because they have sure. to pay him the money. So it has to be a messy break. I'm so excited because it's going to have to be a number like that. You can't get that number down. You have to wait five years. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Mel Tucker. That'd be an oh. interesting one. Oh. A little bit of recency bias in that, but yeah, the, the, one of these coaches who got a 10 year fully guaranteed contract, something like that, who mm-hmm. maybe wasn't quite as established, maybe Mario Cristobal at Miami, something like that. That could be the case. That's, but it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And hopefully, laying out these numbers, this gives everybody the proper context when you have these conversations going into the season and we can remember these things. We will obviously hark back to some of these, some of these things as well. Informative pod today. Informative pod. Um, okay. Before we kick it to David Hale, quick word from our friends at Underdog Sports Betting, not legal in all these states in the Southeast like Georgia, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, etc. I want to talk to you about Underdog Fantasy. You might have tried Daily Fantasy in the past, but Underdog is a new platform that's extremely popular right now. They have some awesome contests where you can compete for real money. Great way to scratch that sports betting itch. We have an exclusive arrangement with Underdog. If you go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash Underdog, you can automatically double your first deposit when you join. You sign up, you throw in 50 bucks, they'll throw in 50 more dollars. A great way to get some money to play on these contests. Every week you can pick higher or lower for different players. Very similar to sports betting player props. You can put real money on the line, legal and live in states like Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas, etc. Go on there, figure out your NFL picks. You're listening to this on a Friday. You're like, all right, maybe we got some Pat Mahomes news, something like that. Go figure out your picks right just now. I can't give anything based on that just yet, but figure that out. Get yourself some action for championship weekend in the NFL so that you're not just sitting there like, oh, I hope my random SEC school does this in this game where I can brag about this guy. It's fun to have a little bit of skin in the game. Underdog's awesome. Super fun to do while you're watching football or any other sport in your living room. You can win some real money. Go to SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. Take advantage of our promo where underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. $100 absolutely free. SaturdayDownSouth.com slash underdog. All right, let's kick it to David. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is ESPN's David Hale. Uh, David, you are in a coffee shop right now at Duke doing some boots on the ground reporting for ESPN. Did you get a chance to stop in and see friend of the show, Mike Elko, and tell him that he's a <laughs> darn good football coach? Uh, sadly, Mike was out recruiting, so I was strictly here for uh, basketball purposes. I did not get to hang out with Mike, but I was saddened by it because I agree. He is uh, a, a friend of everyone's show. He's good people. It's kind of crazy to think about the year that was for AM without Elko, who had 
half as many wins as Jimbo Fisher's former school, of course, Florida State. It, this year was really everything that an FSU fan could have probably hoped for because in addition to watching Jimbo struggle, Florida State beats LSU and Florida, and then both Florida and Miami have losing seasons with first-year head coaches. And on top of that, Clemson didn't really have that bounce-back year that some expected that they could have, and they look more beatable than they've been during any time probably in the playoff era. I said that FSU was my ultimate good vibes team in college football all this offseason with 10 wins jordan travis coming back bowl yeah. victory all that stuff will you second that notion oh i mean without question um it's funny you know i was talking to some duke people here today and i think they're going to have a pretty tough schedule in 23 and expectations have been ratcheted up quite a bit because they won nine games and sort of the challenge is when everybody's patting you on the back now like how do you repeat this and that is exactly where florida state is except ratcheted up even another five or six notches beyond that because uh, you're right. I think there is a real appetite for anyone other than Clemson. And certainly I think for Florida state to be back quote unquote. Um, and, and there are so many pieces that look like they are there. I mean, Jordan Travis, that story is incredible. I mean, this guy three years ago couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with a football and is a genuine Heisman candidate going into next season and deservedly. So, um, and, you know, Mike Norvell has just – look, we can talk about the, the fact that he has found really good players in the transfer portal that have changed the talent level of that roster. But I don't – I think it's under-discussed how much he has changed the culture of that roster. That locker room when he got there was a disaster. Like, that is not a place you would have wanted to spend much time. Um, the, the atrophy in the final years of Jimbo Fisher's tenure – and then the absolute train wreck was the year and a half under Willie Taggart. Things were very bad there. And so not only has he brought in players who can absolutely help the football team on the field, he's really changed sort of the attitude and the mindset within the locker room. Um, but all of that being said, it is one thing to uh, get everybody to rally behind you when you're coming off a five-win season to say, we got to go get better. It is another thing to go spend the next, as you said, the next six or eight months with everybody patting you on the back and telling you this is going to be your year and then to deliver on those expectations. To me, um, that is the ultimate question because there is going to be enough talent on that roster. And I think there are enough genuine questions around Clemson to say this could be Florida State's year. It could be, but this is a level that they have not been at in a long time. They have this moment, which I always think is really interesting, especially for big time programs, a, a potential sliding doors moment. They go through this three game winning streak or three game losing streak rather during the regular season. And they, they could have easily splintered because you get into the top 25, you're feeling good. And then you lose three in a row and you're not going to the ACC championship. And then they end the year on this six game winning streak and everything about Mike Norvell changes. What do you think was the biggest reason why they turned it around midseason? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, again, comes back to sort of culture. And uh, it, it would have been a problem three years ago. It would have been a problem two years ago. Last year, they lost four to start the year and then won four in a row. And to be honest with you, last year, after that Jacksonville State game last year, which every Florida State fan wishes would just go into the history books and never be spoken of again, when they lose on this Hail Mary pass at the end of the game, I mean, there were people who wanted Mike Norvell fired before he got off the field. Uh, and that wouldn't have necessarily been a crazy thing because it was that bad of a loss. And the team still had some resilience to it, some life to it. And I, to me, um, this is really where Mike Norvell has made his bread and butter at Florida State because he's made mistakes. He has had some real um, 
bad moments, and particularly that first year during COVID where things were just really tough, building relationships and changing the chemistry there. Um, he has done a really good job of getting at least the vast majority of players sort of pulling in the same direction. I think for a long time, really after the 2013 championship season, it felt way too often as if there were two or three guys pulling in the right direction and everybody else was kind of in it for themselves. There is a genuine team dynamic there that I don't think existed for quite a while. One of the most interesting developments that we've had in the offseason Dabo going out, getting Garrett Riley, um, not just doing the in-house promotion thing. I mean, he poached a Broyles Award winner and, and committed to changing offensively, which is a really significant development at a place like Clemson. Can that, coupled with the Cade Klubnick, Will Shipley, that duo, which we expect to be one of the best one-two punches in college football, can that be enough to get Clemson back into the national championship conversation? I think it can. Um, I mean, certainly there's no guarantees here. I mean, Miami went and poached a Royals winner the year before and their offense was a train wreck last year. Um, I, I, I think that it's said a lot because Dabo just is so uh, – what's the nice way of putting this? He does not like that people question him. And yeah. he got a lot of questions. And he's never said, like, yep, I was wrong, but he has made decisions – uh, that have been long overdue, including, of course, this one getting Garrett Riley. To me, I think it says one thing that, that um, as much as Dabo might put on the, the facade publicly that, like, I'm not listening to you, I don't care, I'm doing it my way, he is willing to be rational when the need arises, um, and, and certainly did there. Um, I think it also showed that – Look, if you look at the numbers, Brandon Streeter was not bad as an offensive coordinator last year and actually dramatically improved Clemson's offense from the year before under Tony Elliott. Like, by most metrics, stats-wise, it was a successful season for him. But what it was was essentially a better version of the same thing Clemson has been running out there for, you know, since the Chad Morris era. And I think this was a signal less that, like, we needed different people calling the plays than we just needed different plays. We needed a different offensive philosophy, and that's huge. But at the end of the day, there's still a very real issue of the fact that they have not developed a wide receiver there in a long time that has become a star. And, um, I mean, have essentially we're reliant on true freshmen for most of last season. Um, they The offensive line made strides this past year, but if you watch that, Orange Bowl, Tennessee just absolutely annihilated Clemson up front and had Kate Klubnick. I mean, there were times where I thought he jumped out of the pocket way too early, but he was that was a product of having been pressured so much. So, um, And Will Shipley, I think, is uber-talented but was underutilized last year, um, not just in the number of carries that he got, but just in the way you were getting him to football and not getting it to him in space enough and not using him enough as a receiver. Um, all of those things sort of coupled together need to improve. And I think Garrett Riley can be a big step in, in addressing some of those things. But, you know, again, the bottom line is you got to have better QB play. You got to have better wide receiver play. You got to be able to use your best player better than they have. And you got to be able to block up front. And those things go beyond just the offensive coordinators. I asked this question knowing that there it's going to reek of a little bit of recency bias, but I, I, I do think that there is some actual thought that goes into this. So let's pretend that their stock prices are the exact same to buy right now. And I can say, David, all right, you can buy as many shares as you want right now without any chance of selling for the next five years. Who would you buy more shares of, Dabo or Beamer? 
Oh man, that's a really good question. Um, I think Dabo still, I mean, it's sort of like buying like a blue chip stock. Like it's like investing in IBM or McDonald's or something like that. Like there's risk, but, and there's probably not as high a ceiling um, or as, as rapid a growth curve, but I, you know, especially I think the big difference is that Clemson's in the ACC and that is going to be a much easier ride. I mean, I, I'd rather be Dabo fending off Florida State than Shane trying to catch up with Georgia because I, I think that's just a mountain that's not climbable in a realistic sense on a consistent basis. Um, and, and much as Florida State has been the sleeping giant, I mean, Tennessee is only come up, obviously. You know, Florida, I don't know what the long term is there with Napier, but I mean, you would think that they have to get better and there's certainly resources there recruiting wise. I, I just think that what what the path for Dabo to, to, to sustain success is probably a lot simpler than the one for Shane, but he has done a tremendous job in South Carolina. True or false, DJ Uyunglele's career trajectory changed forever the night that he faced that 2021 Georgia defense. <laughs> um, I think it's an easy sort of narrative. To, and so we were just talking, we're, we're both Cubs fans. That's that Georgia game is sort of like the Steve Bartman of the uh, DJ story. Like it did have an impact, like it's real, but I don't think that it was like the thing that changed the entire trajectory. I mean, look, I I don't know. I I hope the best for DJ at at Oregon state because he is a really good dude and, and took his lumps and was as much of a pros pro as you could be over the last two years. Um, but he is just, you know, he was not one of the things that I kept hearing from coaches is you, you would see him. He was really good at throwing to an open receiver, but trying to throw to space was not his strong suit. Um, he was not super accurate within small windows and, and Clemson's receiving core was just not good enough to be that for him to, to do that for him. Um, whether that'll be the case at Oregon state or not, I, I just think maybe we overestimated what his ceiling was to begin with. Um, and I think a lot of what you saw at Clemson, he can be better than what we saw at Clemson, but I don't, I think this is always more or less who he was going to be there. Okay. So that was my next true or false was, uh, that DJ will have more success working with Jonathan Smith experienced offensive line. They run the football a ton. He'll have more success at Oregon state than he did in those two years at Clemson. I think so. Probably, um, you know, I, he wasn't awful this year for a good portion of the year, but just when he was bad, he was real bad. And it was always, you know, you were always with him sort of waiting for the the other shoe to drop. So I think being just new scenery is going to help him a lot to t- kind of take the, the pressure off. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think playing in a different offense with maybe some more established receivers is probably a good thing too. Um, I don't expect him to be like all of a sudden a Heisman candidate now. But I think he'll probably put up some better overall numbers than he did the past couple of years. Miami is uh, a team that I'm sure you've talked about a lot over the course of the last couple of years. I mean, really, especially since Mario has been there um, this this first year. And I know it was only one year. We don't judge year one coaches on the show. That's not what we do. But I think it was overlooked by a lot of people that Manny Diaz like knew what he was doing. He, he did. <laughs> it, it, there wasn't some guarantee that Mario Cristobal is just going to walk in there. They're going to start competing for New Year's Six Bowls immediately. The best explanation, though, in terms of the big picture, why Miami is has struggled for the last two decades to get back is that 
they just in, in a decade in which we're talking about spending on on football, they they took way too long to be able to do that. And then that combined with people spending more money on recruiting and getting to the, the southern part of the state of Florida, wherein I-4 is no longer roped off. Miami has struggled with all these people coming in, and it's not as easy as it maybe once was to block off that part of the state. Is is that a fair assessment of the 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 hurdles that that Mario is probably still going to have to overcome, even if they get that continued funding for Miami football. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that the path for Miami is not what it was in the '80s and '90s. Clearly, I mean, the game has changed markedly. I think, in some ways, the way the game is changing now may be beneficial to Miami if they can build the right infrastructure there, and they certainly are taking strides. I mean, honestly, one person who deserves a ton of credit for this is Mark Rick because what he got there from Georgia basically said like you can't win with what you have right now like this is not how winning looks um and so i think he started laying the foundation for what needed the change and we're getting there more and more with with what mario mario has has demanded and certainly bringing in dan adikovich as the ad to to fundraise and, and make some of this stuff happen uh is big too you know miami was sort of it's been an interesting dynamic because uh, not to necessarily bash guys, but I think they had some not great AD hires along the way. Um, and the school, you know, one of the big college football buzzwords is alignment. And everybody talks about you need to have the whole program aligned to the president on down. Miami has been a place where, like, the president doesn't give a damn about football more often than not. Um, and and as you alluded to, you know, when Miami was big time Miami, the thought process was like, we're Miami. We live in the best recruiting area in the country we win any we've won with without all of these excesses and and bells and whistles we don't need them and it was sort of them you know thumping their chest and thumbing their nose and the fact of the matter is no you do need them you did these things so they're playing catch up at a time where um you know i think it's good it's good that they're playing catch up but i also wonder i always say this and this is a little bit true with florida state too like great that you're catching up with where everybody else was five or six years ago but the game is changing so rapidly that by the time you catch up to that, what have you, what, how much farther have you fallen behind in other ways? I think that's sort of the big question is like, can, can Miami play, not only play catch up, but also evolve into the new world of NIL and transfer portal and all the stuff that's going on now. I don't think anybody will be picking Miami to win the ACC overwhelming preseason picks, FSU Clemson. Who is your favorite dark horse? Uh, boy, this is a good question. I think certainly you can point to UNC and say, like, there's pieces there. And, I mean, you could have watched them enough this year at times to say, like, there's a reason to get excited about this team. But the pieces just haven't fit right. Um, some of the really good recruiting that Mac Brown has done has not really turned into production on the field. Gene Chizik's hire on defense really didn't make a whole bunch of uh, an impact last year. You got to be happy about Drake May and think you got a chance to win because you have Drake May. I don't know that they've got the horses on defense to win consistently uh, high enough to beat, you know, beat out of Clemson and Florida State. Um, beyond that, look, NC State's going to be interesting with Robert and I coming in as the new offensive coordinator and teaming up with Brennan Armstrong again, who they put up some big numbers at Virginia a couple of years ago. And NC State's going to have a pretty good veteran defense again. But, you know, NC State is sort of like, I mean, that's the fool's gold. You buy, every, every time you get excited about them, is is, is you're, it's not going to end well for you. Um, 
you know, and, and there's probably, I will say probably the most overlooked team in the ACC and almost, you know, probably nationally is Pittsburgh. Um, they lost a couple of games early this year, so everybody kind of forgot about them. But look, they won the ACC handily two years ago. And had they not been down to their third string quarterback, should have won that Peach Bowl game. Then they finished super strong this year. They have 20 wins over the last two years. There's only a handful of teams in the country that can say that, and they've all been playoff caliber teams. So I'm not ready to write them off. And I think getting Phil Dracovic at quarterback, he's a much better fit than Keaton Slovis was. Um, they're still going to run the ball well. Defense is still going to be really good. It's going to be sort of, you know, they're very much of the Mike D'Antonio ilk uh, Michigan State teams. They're never sexy, but they're going to be hard to beat. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Pittsburgh's right there in that conversation too. You didn't know this when you when you hopped on, but this is the number one pro Gene Chizik podcast in America. I claim that. <laughs> um, that hurt. That hurt a lot. I was hoping you were going to say UNC is your dark horse. The defense was inevitably going to get better. Um, that that doesn't seem to be the case. I'm I'm a little worried for for my guy Chizik. I'm I'm a little I, bit uh... worried. I am with you. I love Gene, and I would like to see them be good. I mean, look, there's some probably needed attrition, some addition by subtraction on that defense. You know, the big thing to me is that I, I didn't see a ton of schematic change other than maybe some simplification from what Jay Bateman was doing when they were really struggling. I would like to see them be much more aggressive up front. They've got some horses on, on the defensive front. I think that it needs to start there, some more aggressiveness on defense. And, uh, you know, sort of dictate the action. There, it has a, been a very passive defense the last couple of years. And, and to me, that's, that's where the sort of problems start or the lack of development uh, can be most seen. That's just setting the stage for his Broyles Award speech. That's perfectly fine. No big deal. Uh, we'll play, we'll play I'll, introduce, I'll introduce him at the, at the ceremony. Love it. Love it. Uh, last one for you. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people right now look at the ACC and they're kind of wondering what's next three years without winning a playoff game. And before that, the conference had not gone more than a year with, without a playoff win. It's, it's still not in like Pac-12 territory or anything like that in terms of a, a playoff era drought. But it feels like the conference isn't going to get the benefit of the doubt when the playoff expands. And, and that's a potential issue because you obviously limit your chances. If you're trying to just get a, a seat at the table, you need as many as humanly possible. Is there concern about that right now, kind of from the top down and how this could spiral into perception that that kind of lasts with the ACC throughout the 2020s? Yeah, I think without question. I mean, because look, we wouldn't have said this about the Pac-12, you know, in, the, in 2010, 2011, and, you know, you had Oregon and USC that were good. And it was like, oh, it's fine. Well, they just missed the playoff this year. And then next thing you know, like a half a decade has gone by with them missing the playoff. Um, so I, I think you have to be very careful at how slippery the slope can be. Um, I, I think playoff expansion certainly helps just because you're, you're not going to be missing every year. But, I, I, you know, it's one of the things I, I said, like, yeah, great for the Pac-12 and the, and the ACC. And anybody who wouldn't get a team and otherwise, you've got playoff teams now. But if the SEC is getting five playoff teams and you're getting one, it still really doesn't help you. You're actually losing in this bargain. Uh, I think the ACC is in an okay spot because you still have a, a good path for Clemson. The fact that Florida State is going to be competitive is huge. Like They have really missed having important regular season conference games over the last few years. I mean, say what you want about the playoff the fact that like there's just not a game during the regular season between two ACC teams that anyone nationally is excited to see that's been a problem so being back on that radar is important 
And, you know, the, ultimately, there are still huge questions about revenue disparities um, between what the Big Ten and the SEC have. I, I had a tweet today looking at the number of close games and fourth quarter comebacks and the ACC has, it's more fun to watch than other leagues. Like just from a sheer drama and excitement standpoint, it doesn't mean it's good football all the time, but it's fun to watch. Um, and I think they've got to make a case to say like, not only are we sort of fun to watch, but also we're good football and give ESPN a reason to shell out some more money. And at the end of the day, like, yeah, playoffs is part of the combination of, of trying to close a, a really problematic revenue gap that I think as we move, I don't think the league is going to fall apart next year or the year after, but I look at sort of 2029, 20, 2030 and say like, this is this big, you know, beacon in the night that is, you're going to get closer and closer to that shore. And one day you're going to shipwreck is basically what's going to happen. So you've got to figure out a way to change course between now and then. And I don't know that playoff expansion fixes this. I don't know if Florida State being good fixes this. Maybe it's a combination of a bunch of things that, that start to address the problem. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's real existential issues for the ACC long term. Yeah, you can't just be Maction. You know, can't just be Maction and be fun entertainment. We all love Maction, but, yeah. Not exactly paying the bills uh, for the ACC long term. Uh, David, really appreciate the time. Great stuff. We'll, we'll have to do this again in season. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. How about this one? I call it bold and brash. More like belongs in the trash. <laughs> Sorry, I must have missed that one. Bold and brash. Let's do some way too early non-ICC predictions for 2023. If you put way too early in front of anything, I've realized in this business, you can revisit it. As a real prediction, like if I came out with way too early playoff predictions or something like that, I'm not locked into that. No way. Mm -hmm. This era of transfer portal? Get, get out of here. These are way too early predictions. So nobody that submits a way too early prediction is locked into this through December. Unless and, it's right. Unless You it's know right. the game. Yep, exactly. Exactly, Will. Unless it's right, you get to claim it if you want to edit it by all means, but this is calling your shot in doing so, oh, you know, eight months before any football is going to be played. I guess seven seven months before any football is going to be played. I'm bad at math. Um, but yeah, good chance to call your shot. Will, do you have any way too early, bold, non-SEC predictions for 2023? I just wanted to say the apex of one of those is back when I was editing the podcast and I was like, I think Joe Burrow is going to be better than Jake Fromm in 2019. That's I had no good. reason to think that. No reason, no statistical other than being a homer. I was just like, I think this is the year. And it turns out he threw, you know, 60 plus touchdowns. I was like, ha, I knew it. I didn't know it, Connor. I'm here to tell you right now. I just hopes. It's unfair to say that's the year. That is, we say, oh, this is the year. If you say this is the year, that means your guy is going to be an all-conference type player. Not to yeah. deliver arguably the best single season in college football history. Exactly. Yeah, but as far as outside of this stuff, I mean... It's tough, man, because it seems like I think FSU is the best team outside of. I can't believe I'm going to say this. I think I think FSU might be the best team outside of the SEC. Um, it's going to be. I, I really do think they have talent. They have this big game with LSU. We've talked about it before. They could beat LSU. I don't know. They did last year when nobody thought they could. So who's to say? But obviously, Ohio State is what they are. Um, but I've been saying it like uh, for a while. If, if if FSU doesn't finish in the top ten this year, based on what they have, what they've added in the portal, Norvell 
is a fraud. There's no other way of looking at it because they have a longtime veteran quarterback. They have, you know, Bell. They have all these guys that they're bringing in. They're getting their pick of the litter from the transfer portal. So I don't know, man. You know, Clemson's not where they want to be. Some of these teams, I I, I think that might be my team I'm going to I'm gonna ride for this year. Is this the biggest college? No, it's not. Never mind. I was going to say, is this the biggest college football opener since – 2017 Bama FSU in Atlanta to open Mercedes-Benz. That's not because Clemson and Georgia faced mm-hmm. off. Some probably would have said that Notre Dame, Ohio State was bigger, even though Notre Dame was overrated coming into the season. It's 1962, maybe. Yeah, yeah, seriously. But it's it's definitely going to be uh, one of those games in which you're like, wow, eight months of buildup for two programs that are going to have a lot of positive things said about them in the off season. That'll have a chance to be confirmation bias, or we're going to suddenly be asking all these questions and the loser of this game might feel like 2021 Clemson or 2017 Florida state, which yikes talk about downturn after that. So, um, okay. I like that. Um, mine, mine is not bold. It's just that I'm in love with Utah again. Oh no. We got to get you some help, man. It's the mountains. They're calling your name like sirens. I can't, I, I just can't quit. I, I love Cam Rising. I love Keithy, the tight end. I, I am so unbelievably enamored with the Utes. Way too early prediction. Utah ain't losing that season opener against Florida this year. That's not happening. You they're know? playing in the mountains, though. Oh, they're going to make them with adjust to the air pressure. Okay, that's different than playing in the swamp, as we learned this year. Can you simulate mountain air pressure in the swamp? I was about to say, you probably can, but not in Gainesville, Florida. There's some type of below sea level that you get to where it's just like, we can't even take this seriously. So yeah, I, if I was Billy, I would do the whole like, um, you know, the 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 over the overhype thing where they take everybody out there like two weeks early yep. and they put them in the Bane masks and they have like the videos of them running up the mountains. This actually may help them there because you can't do a whole off season in Florida and then just go to Utah and just think you're going to be fine. It's different yeah, out there, man. It absolutely is. And if you're spending five million bucks on a support staff, you can kick in a couple extra hundred thousand dollars to be able to finance that trip for a few extra days. And I realize there's been a lot said about Florida's finances and being able to scrounge together some money between the cushions in your couch. But I think you can make that happen. I think that would be for the better. I think Utah wins that game. If they go full Dwight Schrute, simulate what the office is going to be like in Florida. Like, how'd you get mosquitoes in here? They're slapping them off. Stanley slaps them off his neck. If Florida, if Florida had been subject to that from Utah, Utah probably wins that season opener. I'm just saying, you know, if they had simply watched more of the office, they could have beaten six and six Florida. So we'll be here all week. Hand out advice. All right, let's go to the Saturday on South podcast, Facebook group. A lot of good ones, really, really good ones. Way too early non SEC bold predictions. Let's start with this one from Drew Page. Drew says Colorado will win six games and go bowling. Texas will struggle, causing Ewers to get benched for Manning, and USC is finally able to beat Utah one time. You know where I stand on that. Um, that last one. <laughs> no, no, that's too bold for this. We're, we're not getting to that those levels yet. Um, Colorado winning six games and going bowling. Their over under is going to be fascinating. Because it's probably going to be, oh man, they're usually really good with that, actually. Like Vegas doesn't get too caught into the hype with over-unders. Now, if we're talking like preseason national championship odds, that's an entirely different story with a future like that. But they're usually pretty on the money with a team like that coming out of nowhere. And it's going to be interesting to see how many more big-time transfers that they can get post-spring and what that looks like. Because that roster was bad. I mean, just 
decimated in the things that they're trying to do in year one. I think winning six games and going to a bowl game with how quickly you can overhaul a roster and doing so in that conference, like mm, that's not that bold. So I, I think that's got a really good chance of, of happening. Ewers, we are both pro Ewers though. Yep. There's a part of me that just really wants to see the best version of him and how fun that can be. I badly want to see him look like the guy before he got hurt against Bama. And I'm not saying that that definitely changed the rest of it because you could point to the Oklahoma game after that where he looked really good. So that, that might not even be a fair thing to say. But if he can hold off Arch for a year and we get this fun version of him in the Sark offense with the pieces that they're returning at receiver, just added A.D. Mitchell, that could be a really, really intriguing offense to watch. But the problem is that he's going to get 2021 Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma treatment. Mm -hmm. Caleb Williams, they're calling for him after the first month of the year. Um, that's, that's the tough thing and why this is kind of a slippery slope and why the range of outcomes for somebody like yours is so significant. And if he's in yeah. the portal at this time next year or like onto a new school, it's, we shouldn't consider that a surprise. It really shouldn't, but I continue to be more pro yours than anti yours. Yeah. I think you're the thing about yours that we loved is, you know, these risks he would take and the fact that he trusted his arm and the kid just had a cannon for being as young as he is. And, you know, it's tough because to your point, it's like, if you're going to be bad, be fun bad. I always say that. Yes. Like, be that NBA team that gives up 130 and scores 104. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I want from you. And it's unfortunate, you know, the biggest game of their season, other than Alabama, obviously, TCU, you know, they put up 10 points. And it's like, bro, lose that game 40 to 35. Yep. <laughs> Don't lose that game 10 to 17. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's like, I, I love that version of Texas with yours with the, I mean, I had this joke about, oh gosh, who's the West Virginia quarterback that came from Florida with the arm sleeve um he was really good at florida for like four games oh will greer greer Greer, yes so will greer had an arm sleeve and i was like will he be the first nfl quarterback with an arm sleeve that could be quinn you so a lot's riding on the on the table here he has like a big arm it's not tattoo people will tell me it's not full sleeve but it's a huge visible tattoo in your arm i'm trying to think there's oh man do we rogers isn't an arm sleeve he's doing his own thing he's already made it you know yeah that's true okay trying to make it while having an arm sleeve. Exactly. Because okay. people used to say tattoo people were bad. There were character concerns. I need him to be that guy. Just mullet, arm sleeve, slinging the rock. Uncle Rico, you know? Boomer's worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's do another Texas one here from Austin Foster. Austin says, Texas fires Sark by week five. Oof. I got to get on the Sark buyout numbers. I think they're pretty significant especially considering what they paid to fire Tom Harmon and yeah. all the the staff too. Cause it wasn't just the, I well, it was a number like 16 million or something like that. It was, it was all the staff and stuff as well that goes into that. The Arch Manning dynamic might prevent that. It mm-hmm. just might, because even if things are so bad this year, and I mean like four and eight Charlie strong levels of, of bad for Texas. Don't you kind of have to wait and see what you have, you know? No, yeah, he's unfireable. And I mean, they have more money than God over there in Texas. The bio is not the issue. It's the fact that in the transfer portal era, you can't bring two of these 
huge, like top five overall quarterbacks available. You got two of them. You can't bring those guys in the boat and then lose your coach, period. Doesn't matter how bad you are because both of them leave. <laughs> and yeah. then they go to Oklahoma and then you got to see him again. Don't You can't at this point. You got to at least let Arch get two or three years in to where it's like, okay, well, if you leave, then you go somewhere for a year and not we've we, the, the Kevin Sumlin situation where you got all his kids that he's recruited just beating your butt every year after yeah, he leaves. Yeah, you can't have that. Can't have that. I yeah, I think Sark will will very likely get a year four for for that alone and what they're doing, what they can do with with NIL to be able to turn things around in a hurry. I mean, that that appears very evident. But you know, at the same time, he does have what feels like a very defining year for kind of his reputation. And his offenses haven't necessarily been the issue, you know, and I think it's just been a little bit of the inconsistency with them sometimes, because if you look at the raw numbers, you're actually pretty encouraged by by what he was able to do. You, I thought they were pretty encouraging year one, but what does it look like without B. John Robinson is a really interesting question. And what can it look like with a full year of yours in that offense or yours and then potentially arch that to me is is going to be what determines if he's going to be uh one of these one of these guys in college football who we put on the the top 10 of these these best coaches in the country and he's he's not at that level yet because in terms of what he's done as head coach it's pretty minimal but yeah i mean fired by week five would be you're not trying out the arts thing at all things things off the field would probably have to be percolating there's a word I didn't think I'd use today. They'd probably have to be percolating for that to happen. You're, you're bringing early. in head coach Peyton Manning at that point. It's like we have a clear successor that's like going to get this thing right right now. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I think, I think Peyton would be a terrible coach. I think he'd be Me too. awful. Yeah. Oh, he'd be horrible. What's what, the the video that always goes viral with him yelling at Donald Brown? Have you, have you seen that? That's pretty good. That's that's how Peyton would be like literally every single time a quarterback didn't see his exact vision on this coverage. And you're like, oh, why didn't you anticipate that you were going to have, you know, bracket coverage and you cut off the route like three yards earlier. And I anticipated that like Peyton's on a different level. I don't think he, you can I don't think he'd be able to step into somebody else's brain or bring in Tracy Sorry. Porter to keep him humble. That's how you do that. Anyway, Indiana. Great. Tracy Porter. Facts. Yeah. Facts. Laura Doyle. Uh, Laura Doyle's got a couple um okay let's go to this one we've had a lot of acc discussion today clemson doesn't win the acc but neither does fsu but fsu finally beats them and begins uh to and all begins to be right in the world i think is what you meant to say Mm -hmm. if they don't um that's not going to be that's not going to be a popular opinion to say that Anybody outside of those two will win. So it is definitely bold. I would love to see what those odds look like post-spring. ACC champ, what that, those future odds look like and how significant that drop-off is because Wake Forest loses Sam Hartman. NC State loses Devin Leary. But at the same time, they gained Brennan Armstrong from Virginia who just had kind of a lost year for them. And now he's going there. So a little bit of the, the in-house trading. But still, it's going to be those two and everybody else the way that it's discussed in the preseason. I think UNC had UNC finished the season better than it did or if they just beat Oregon. If they just held on to that game and won mm-hmm, the bowl mm-hmm. game, I think we're having a different discussion with UNC, with Drake May back, with the Gene Chizik defense, which will be getting better, which will mm-hmm. be getting better. Of course. UNC would be the dark horse, but yeah, it's going to be the, consider those two and everybody else. So I have no problem with Laura just saying the field 
because that is going to be super bold because the ACC feels really top heavy. Okay, let's go to another one here from, this is good. I'll stay on the Texas team. Chris Milan says, Arch Manning doesn't lose his student ID for the rest of the year. Hmm. Do we know for certain that he lost it twice? For certain. Got to dock your pocket awareness, son. Come on. Got to be aware of your pockets. Why do we hear about these things from Texas quarterbacks? Queen Ewers getting the, the parking ticket for not knowing where to park during game day and Arch losing his ID. Why Why does this stuff see the light of day so easily? Because it's Texas. So Everybody over there, it's like if TikTokers were a university. It's like, oh, yeah, look at this famous person. It's like he's 18. Leave him alone. They want the clout so bad out there. It's surprising that he doesn't have the, um, you know, the lanyard that everybody mm-hmm. wears. That's the easiest way to spot freshmen. If you're if you're going to be in college by the way and you're um you're you're maybe going to be starting off your freshman year, I guess in like 7 months or something like that, you're listening to this and you're a senior in high school, get rid of the lanyard after like the first week or so and you figure out a system to be able to keep your ID. You if you can hold on to a credit card in your wallet, you should be able to hold on to an ID. I'm just saying mm-hmm. like the lanyard I get it. You want to keep track of your keys, all those things, but you're a freshman and everybody knows it. So Arch doesn't have the lanyard clearly though. Otherwise he wouldn't have lost his ID. So it's kind of a catch 22. Yeah, he needs cool. to be, we need to give Arch a lanyard. That's the NIL partnership he needs. Yeah. No, I, I look burn orange lanyard. I, somebody make sure that he has it make sure that he's not getting locked out of his building. What does, what does Arch do when he can't get into his, his own building? Does he, does he call up? somebody like somebody with you know player um quality control or something like that within the program say hey uh, we, we got to figure out a way to be able to get me in this building does he call up a teammate can you do that yet when you're still you know 18? that's the documentary i want to see i want to see a 30 for 30 about like team ops people that have gotten weird calls and just been like that's what i want the story of you're exactly right because those guys lives are wild and nobody talks about it yeah i saw somebody recently had a tweet i can't remember who it was for but it was it was texts from a player asking if they could eat this or if they could eat that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's just the stuff you get all day. That's oh, insane. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That job is, oh my gosh, you have to be wired a different way to do something like that to be able to just get random texts from big time people. Oh yeah, I lost my ID middle of the night. Like, oh my god, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's 18 year old kids. Okay, let's go to this one from Carl. I'm going to pronounce your last name wrong, Carl. I apologize. Carl Balch? Balch? Balch. Balch. Sure. He says, Hartman leads Notre Dame back to the, I'm just going to say, college football playoffs. I'm not going to rule that out because while I do think we tend to overrate Notre Dame in the preseason, they've still been to the playoff twice. So it's not impossible knowing that the majority of their schedule is the ACC, knowing that they still have that all-important game against USC late in the year, that's why that path is going to be there. And if you're pro Sam Hartman, like I certainly am, and I think he's a fascinating guy to watch, even though he's roughly 38 years old. If Notre Dame makes the playoff, I think the the same Stetson Bennett is 25 people have that same energy with Sam Hartman because he looks about 10 to 15 years older than Stetson Bennett. So take that for what it is. 
Uh, I, I'm not going to rule out that possibility just because I think Marcus Freeman uh, in a year two defense, that group should be better. And I don't want to do the thing that I did with Oklahoma last year where I said, well, it's a Jeff Levy offense with Dylan Gabriel and a Brent Venables defense. How are they going to be bad? That came back to bite me big time. I, one of the most logical things we have both ever said just turned out to be completely backward wrong. Yeah. I underthought it. I underthought it. So I'm not going to do the exact thing. I probably won't personally have Notre Dame in the college football playoff, but they were, they were a difficult team to rank in that yeah. five to 10 spot. And you'll kind of see them five through 15 in any of these way too early rankings. Um, because when you have the quarterback and when you have the guy, which they did not last year, it definitely changes things. And I love me some Sam Hartman. He's a fun guy to watch, even though he's in year eight of college. All right, let's go to... Oh, this is a good one. This is a good one. Uh, Grant Haney says, <laughs> Bo Nix leads Oregon to the Pac-12 title and the return of the playoff for the first time since college football playoffs inaugural season, um, a Pac-12 team. During the Ducks' magical run, Nix wins the Heisman and continues the unwritten rule that friends don't let friends bet on preseason Heisman favorites. Trademark pending. Mm -hmm. Bo Nix, at this stage of his career, doing something like that, the closest thing it would be Baker Mayfield is, is that no, even that doesn't feel quite right because I think Baker Baker was definitely held in a higher regard than, than yeah. Bo Nix. I'm not debating that, um, but that would be an atypical path with how well known he is. That's my point, how well mm -hmm. known he is and how much we feel like we have him kind of figured out what he is. And then having another year that just takes it to a different level that nobody saw coming. That's that's my my comp. Yeah, he has a chance to do something that, to your point. I don't think it's ever been done because it's like, yeah, it's rare that a guy kind of like comes in and has what he had, which is the keys to an offense, and then has such mixed reviews. Because we we saw last year what people saw out of him that he was a five star quarter borderline depending on when you look, yeah. but five star quarterback for most of his high school career. We saw it last year. And then I guess just the Gus system just kind of nuked him. And so that's the thing. It's like, maybe he was never actually bad. Maybe he was just in the wrong system. So a lot of times guys will get exposed and kind of like fall off the face of the earth, but it's rare for a guy to be like given freedom, mess it up. And then, yeah, that, that's like, yeah, that would be, I think a first. Yeah. That, uh, a fifth year starter winning the Heisman would definitely be a first. It would have to be a first, right? Like I, I can't think of anything that comes to mind the, the COVID year, him having that year of eligibility, but a fifth year starter winning, mm -hmm. winning the Heisman in college football. I haven't looked at the way too early odds for Bo Nix. Could you pull those up right now? Will actually, just so that we, we make sure we're sticking to our trademark here, because I think I want to say he'd be like fifth or sixth. That would still 100% fall under the the friends don't let friends bet on preseason Heisman favorites mantra. Uh, but I mm -hmm. wanted to make sure that he wouldn't be like third or something like that. That was close. Oh, yeah. There. Um, so basically, yeah, a lot of the guys are back. I didn't even realize this. So obviously um, Stroud is back. Um, Stroud's, not back. Is Stroud's back. off to the NFL. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I completely missed that. You're right. Because for a while they said he was coming back and then he like changed. Last so yep. uh, yeah, 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 100%. So here we go. Uh, number one is Caleb Williams, two is Drake May, three is Michael Penix, four is Bo Nix. So he's he's okay. not a favorite. Not um, a favorite. I do want to propose, though, the closest thing we've seen to Bo Nix is Max Duggan last year because he mm. was bad when he started. And I remember that uh, Ragor, when he was getting drafted, they were like, well, you can't look at his highlights. His quarterback was horrible. And yeah. it was Duggan. Yeah, that's crazy. Man, how things change. He wasn't, mm -hmm. that, he wasn't that good as an underclassman at yeah. all. I mean, that was, that was a reason probably why the Gary Patterson era ended the way that it did. And, mm -hmm. you know. 
had to get the right offensive mind in there and they were able to do that and overhaul that system. But yeah, I think that counts. I think that definitely counts to call your shot with a Bo Nix Heisman. This is, this is the year. I really think Bo Nix puts the, what's the, the tweet. He's having fun. Yeah. He's having fun. He is having fun. He loves it up there. Um, okay. Let's do, let's do two more here. I like this one from Dave Kozar. Michael Penix wins the Heisman and Washington makes the playoff. Love me some Kalen DeBoer. Mm-hmm. Michael Penix couldn't throw a forward pass that that 2021 year with Indiana. It was bad. I mean, like really, really mm-hmm. bad. He was banged up. I get it. Last year, he threw a whole lot of forward passes and they were good. They were oh, yeah. really, really good. Um, their announcer did this thing. The Washington play-by-play announcer a week before when ballots first went out for the Heisman, they tagged a like all the voters in this thread of tweets about Michael Penix. And I'll admit, I look at that stuff. If I'm ever going to let that convince me of how I'm going to vote on something, then I'm probably not doing my job and not doing enough research if I can be talked into something that quickly. But I did look at it from a different perspective and say, man, the cumulative numbers with him, even though I know that they throw the ball a ton, they throw the ball so much. He has been way, way better than I thought he could. And running that offense and having the reunion with with DeBoer has definitely helped him. But um, I don't know that that he is going to get the love just because he might get knocked because of the cumulative numbers and because people with, you know, the area, they talk about that. So that's, that would be my hesitancy with that. Yeah. I just want to say real quick, this is probably something I need to talk about more, but I have like one of my crazy takes is I think Washington is like a sleeping giant. Um, Because if you look at the fact that their campus is in Seattle, like look at what Oregon's doing and look at the fact that like all it took was Phil Knight. Like literally he got involved and it changed everything. All it takes is like, um, Oh gosh, what's his name? The the Clippers new owner. All it takes is like one of these ball uh Balmer. All it takes is like one of these Seattle tech guys to just be like, you know what? I went to UW. Let's put some money into this thing. And Seattle is a much better town than Eugene or even Portland, honestly. It's this beautiful town. It's got everything going on. They have all this money in there from Starbucks, the tech companies, Microsoft, all this different stuff. And so if you get one guy to just be like, you know, I could be the Ruiz of this. I could really make this something. And obviously they were kind of down in the dumps with all the scandal and everything they had with Lake. But yeah, I think that Penix might be the beginning of that, hopefully, because I love Washington. I've always loved their color scheme. Weirdly, I think they do purple and gold a little bit better than LSU. Don't ever, you know, I guess I've said it on record, but I love their old gold. love that deep purple i think washington is going to be something in the next like three or four years but it just takes one person stepping up up there top five stadium that i need to get to washington mm-hmm. for sure okay let's end with this one here um donald hughes says eli holstein starts as a true freshman for alabama milro becomes a dual purpose back in the mold of debo samuel buddy if that happens looks look out look yeah. out look out that would be terrifying that's a good one to to walk off on love it love it hey donald Donald called his shot on, on, on last pod, being able to have him on. He's calling a shot again. Love it. All right. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at the SDS pod at Sat Down South. Subscribe to our basketball newsletter, Blue Chip Grit. You can go do that at bluechipgrit.com. Adam Spencer does great work putting that together. Be an informed college basketball fan. This is a great time to get more information. You can be a more informed college basketball fan in just five minutes by being able to do that. That's all you need to do. Subscribe. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It just shows up in your inbox. It's awesome. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name. Red on air with figuring out or golden brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.